This is Ian Williams with the Foreign Press Association in New York. And today we have Bilal Balok, who is going to talk about India, uh, Modi's particular politics. Uh, not many people have been following India, but suddenly India is very, very important for people. Um, and it's one of the things that's apparent about this is that uh, whatever's happening in Ukraine, uh, whether it affects India directly or not, it certainly makes India desirable property, as uh, as Modi plays hard to get at the United Nations um, and is ambivalent about other people's sovereignty while defending India's own sovereignty and um, balancing between his sort of ideological friends in the US and the military suppliers and uh, backers over and, and fuel suppliers, I presume. I noticed they're selling discounted fuel to India at the moment in Russia. So, and of course, looming over the Himalayas is China, which is never far from India, Indian politicians' mind for fairly obvious reasons. But within all these complications, um, you know, some people say that within, with chaos, there's opportunity. Uh, and it's we're hoping to hear from Bilal to what extent Modi and the Indian government are um, trying to seize opportunities and to what extent they genuinely don't know what to do and are being buffeted between competing forces. Um, you know, there's a complex politics here. There's a strong anti-colonial element in Indian politics, uh, possibly because my some of the, the people who ruled my ancestors also ruled India and uh, spent several hundred years uh, despoiling the place. So there's a, the rich traditions here, um, but India has also been a prominent member of the non-aligned. Uh, people tend to forget that India actually voluntarily provided troops for the Korean War and not on the North Korean side. So the, you know, all of these factors come together um, with the change of government there and with what's happening. So, Bill, explain India's abstention uh, and uh, ambivalence about Russia's invasion of a sovereign state, Ukraine, when India has been so pet up about sovereignty for many years. Yeah, first of all, Ian, thank you for having me. Um, I, I think you mentioned a lot there. I'm not sure I agree with the, uh, some of what you said, but uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's unpack... Uh, Let's unpack some of those causes. So I think the first place to start is exactly where you said, uh, India's uh, abstention, and it's really uh, caught fire on, in our press, in our media, of course, among the, the halls of power in, in the West, in Europe, and especially in the US, whose alliance and relationship with the, uh, with the, uh, with the Indian government has been warming, certainly over the last decade, at a rapid clip. Um, I think we should really separate out the direct causes behind why India chose to abstain at the UN uh, and, and particularly at, at two UN votes vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Russia and then sanctions on Russia and the underlying causes. I think the direct causes are first and foremost the evacuation of around 20,000 Indian citizens in Ukraine. Um, you know, let's not forget that this war is, you know, less than two months old. And in recent history, Russia's way of doing war has been incredibly brutal. 
Uh, we just need to think about the siege of Grozny in Chechnya and the way in which that country was, was raised uh, uh, to the ground in many parts by Russia. And so I think the Indian government's focus on making sure that it was able to evacuate 20,000 of its citizens in Ukraine, which would necessarily involve some level of uh, cooperation and dialogue with the Ukrainians, with Russia, was fundamentally important to its strategic calculus. And I think only one individual was killed in a crossfire, but otherwise uh, nearly all 20,000 were evacuated. I think secondly, and perhaps more importantly for many of your viewers who are interested in international politics, is the political economy of defense. Um, around 60% of India's defense industry and defense imports over the last 10 years uh, have come from Russia. There is a fundamental dependence on Russian arms, submarines, uh, technology, uh, and there's, of course, the, the very important delivery of uh, S-400, uh, uh, half of which have been delivered and the other half are yet to be um, uh, to make their way into India. And in an environment where not only has Russia invaded Ukraine, but the broader geopolitics point to a changing security environment in Europe, the repercussions in Asia, to fundamentally risk your defense preparedness um, would be something that the Indians would look at and be wary of. Um, there's, of course, the long-term plan I think uh, in most of the circles of power and, and, and strategy in Delhi to think about, you know, how can we eventually indigenize our uh, defense establishment, build a domestic uh, military industrial complex, uh, move dependence away from Russia. But in the short term, that's not going to happen. And so when we think about India's abstention, I think both in terms of its immediate um, focus on its citizens uh, from a humanitarian and security perspective, as well as de-risking uh, any threats to its uh, defense preparedness in terms of isolating Russia. I think those are the two proximate causes as to why it, it behaved the way it did. And What were been. the origins of this um, switch to um, Russian supplies? I mean, originally, of course, it was often British uh, colonial uh, inheritance uh, in terms of aircraft, ships, etc., etc. But it was Congress that made the switch to Russia. And to what extent was this ideological, you know, anti-colonial? And to what extent was it uh, technocratic? The Russian weapons were better or cheaper or whatever? <laughs> well, I mean, I think it's worth reminding your viewers that for most of its post-independence history when India received independence from uh, British colonial rule in 1947, uh, India was far more inward looking in terms of its political economy and non-aligned uh, in terms of its foreign relations. And within that milieu, uh, as well as other factors, Russia, uh, India had very few allies among uh, regional and global powers uh, that it could turn to. That wasn't just the case for India, that was the case for, for many other countries coming out of uh, colonial rule. Um, and whereas uh, its neighbor uh, and rival Pakistan uh, went to capitals in Britain and the US, 
seeking out uh, ways to beef up its defenses, um, India turned to, to, to Russia. Um, and there's a bit of history here in terms of uh, how that went about happening, whereas Pakistan became a military straight, military run state pretty early on and was able to uh, use its relationship with the, the US to really beef up uh, its defenses. That wasn't necessarily India's immediate focus, right? Um, but as it, as it happened, um, the 1962 war is worth pointing out, um, uh, which is the Sino-India war. Um, that was the first time that the US and the Kennedy administration was able to help India with arms and, and cold weather supplies. Um, but against that Cold War backdrop, Russia then came back to the US, uh, came back to India in 1965, playing a mediator between India and Pakistan uh, in order to signal to India that um, it was in fact autonomous. And then I think the real key point here is the 1971 India-Pakistan War, or also called the War of Bangladesh's Liberation, where the USSR fundamentally supported India, not just in terms of arms, but also at the UN Security Council, um, sending a pair of nuclear submarines into the Bay of Bengal. Um, and uh, this was fundamental to, to India's preparedness and ability to win that war um, and the other side in Pakistan was supported by, by the U.S. So I think and the imperatives China, of the Cold strongly. War, <laughs> of course, yeah. And so the imperatives of the Cold War, um, I think, brought India into Russia's camp. And you mentioned there the ideological piece. And I think there was already a pretty strong established bridge between certainly the, the economic technocrats um, in India and the advisors to the founding prime minister of the country, Jawaharlal Nehru, um, uh, late uh, his daughter who would um, take on the mantle of prime minister in, in the 1970s. Uh, there was, if not intellectual alignment between uh, India's uh, political elite and uh, communist rule in Russia, but at the very least there was far more resonance between them. Um, and uh, I think that's what, uh, uh, where the ideological bridge would facilitate uh, some of the defense um, uh, cooperation as well. The mystery here is that that bridge is still open, even though Modi is a proponent of American neoliberal politics. And even though Putin has given up any pretense of socialism, even though a lot of people around the world don't seem to have realized he doesn't even pretend to be socialist anymore. So it, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's interesting how these ghosts of the past keep haunting uh, decisions in the present, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, Ian, it's important not to over-egg um, domestic politics um, and its intimate ties to foreign policy. I think, of course, they're tied and and uh, some of the same actors who are making decisions around um, opening up an economy or not, uh, how to move away from import substitution or not, um, which countries to trade with or not. I think these are all questions that impact domestic politics and a country's growth. But strategic concerns around alliances and um, geostrategy 
I think, also function in a, in a separate domain. You know, they're concentric circles, but different. And whereas they have, you're right, historically been pretty close ties between um, certainly historically the, the dominant political party in India, the Indian National Congress, uh, and a more socialist political economy and uh, the USSR and then Russia, um, the way India sees its role in the world and how it behaves with allies may seem like it hasn't changed much, but there has been a fundamental shift. And that can't just be reduced down to America's neoliberalism and Russia's socialism. Uh, I think it's there's far more strategic and proximate reasons of hard security, of ma maintaining and managing a global order that, quite frankly, is in flux. And so I think whereas looking at someone like Prime Minister Modi, he may come across as uh, a leader who is warming up to the US and uh, a neoliberal vision for India, um, he's also a leader that has built a pretty strong state sector and given out uh, social services and what would be considered, you know, quote unquote, handouts um, in a way that would run contra to traditional neoliberal thinking. So I think there's uh, a bit more um, strategy and um, politics involved in how the Indian government behaves domestically, but especially um, internationally. And there we have to look at how it views its place, not just in, in Asia, but also globally. There's an aspect here, you're mentioning the domestic politics, of course, <clears throat> one of the planks of BJP um, support and rallying has been uh, dog whistle Isla Islamophobia, in a sense, uh, invoking communalism to you know, a perilous and murderous degree on occasion. Uh, and <clears throat> the aspect there is that uh, Congress was persistently pro-Palestinian, you might say, in its outlook. Uh, but we've seen a shift now where um, Modi is, uh, has been cultivating Israel and at the same time he's been bashing Muslims at home. Is, are, are these related in terms of domestic and foreign policies uh, or is it, uh, is it something that doesn't really concern your average farmer in, in the plains of northern India? I think at a narrative level, yes. You know, if you look at the um, uh, the narratives in the media, if you look at the narratives uh, on the street, um, you know, there's a transnationalism in the way in which Muslim diasporas around the world think about global politics, right? Um, what goes on in uh, Palestine, what happens with Rohingya Muslims, what happens in Kashmir is not just seen as an international issue far away. Um, Muslims domestically, whether they're in India or whether they're in uh, the US, would consider what's happening in these countries to members of their community, transnational and otherwise, to be of a close issue to them. So if the question is, do um, Muslims in India think about and hold dear to themselves uh, the plight of Palestinians, um, the answer would be yes, but I don't think they're unique in that sense. The question about whether Prime Minister Modi's um, and his party's um, naked sidelining of the Muslim community, uh, one, the, you know, their biggest minority, 
uh, and overseeing um, himself a pogrom of the Muslim community in Gujarat when he was chief minister is tied to how he and his government view um, geopolitics and the Israel-Palestine conflict. Um, I think that's not significant. There were discussions even under the Indian National Congress about opening up pathways to um, have relationships with uh, Israel, um, even when the diplomatic bridge to Israel was opened up under the Modi administration. That has not prevented um, international and multilateral comments from Indian decision makers around the Palestinian cause. So I don't think it's a zero sum necessarily. But of course, you know, I think the relationship with Israel has opened up at a time where, quite frankly, even other Muslim countries uh, are building ties with Israel. Uh, we've seen that most recently with the Abraham Accords, which, quite frankly, were in the works for several years. Um, even the, the distinguishing Trump feature that I would say is that the Muslim countries kissing up to Israel at the moment are doing so without much in the way of popular backing. Uh, they don't have elections. They don't listen to the... the you know, it's profoundly unpopular with their domestic population, with their domestic vote, but they don't have voters, but with the, with the, right, with correct. the population. Exactly. So, but yeah. in, in India, these issues do play into the public field, and I was just wondering to what degree that was the case. I think there's enough happening in India today and has been for several years that crushes its Muslim minority that for the Palestinian cause to become, uh, to light the touch paper is, is, a, is a far cry. Um, as I said, I think it's absolutely important on, on a narrative level, but, you know, uh, the, the crushing of Muslim protesters, the sidelining and ghettoization of Muslim communities, um, the moves made in Kashmir by the Indian state that have essentially turned it into one very large open prison. I think these issues are far more proximate in the, uh, in, in the, in the concerns of the Muslim community in that country. You don't see the parallels between the treatment of the Kashmiris and the treatment of the Uyghurs in China as a, a means of rapprochement between Delhi and Beijing then? That's a very interesting question. I think the, 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 the similarities are, are absolutely there. Um, I think at a global level, uh, we treat these very differently because for the Indian state to go into Kashmir uh, and the legislative mechanisms through which it's gone into Kashmir um, have been touted as, as very different. And... Um, with regards to China, the way in which their treatment of the Uyghur Muslims has been projected um, has been as, um, you know, outside the rule of law and crushing them. Now, again, these are interpretations and narratives that, that, that we've advanced. You control the state, you make the law. Are so both, <laughs> correct. And are, are both countries um, uh, sidelining and crushing their Muslim minorities? Uh, absolutely. But um, the Muslim community in India is also spread far beyond Kashmir. And um, there are states in which the Muslim community, for example, in the state of Telangana, in the city of Hyderabad, um, is very much part of the political process. 
um, and in Kashmir, uh, it's not because that's also a geopolitical issue. Whereas the Muslim community in China is not as spread and is isolated in certain pockets, and those pockets are almost exclusively where um, we've seen the Chinese government is hacking them down. So I think there's there's far more diverse uh, and varied engagement by Muslims in India in the Indian political process than just Kashmir would suggest. Uh, but if looking at them in isolated ways, just looking at what's happening in Kashmir and just looking at what's happening in Xinjiang, just looking at what's happening um, uh, with Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, um, just looking at what's happening with Muslims in Palestine, um, these are absolutely communities that are under the cosh of um, the state because of their a, faith. Yeah. We've had a question from Albert Goldstein, which ties into this to some extent. Um, with Modi's seemingly in unshakable political dominance in Delhi, um, how close is India to an autocracy and does it matter? That's a very good question. I think, you know, the political scientist in me would uh, make a distinction between procedural democracy and substantive democracy. I think, you know, India is the largest democracy in the world. It turns out and churns <clears throat> out citizens to come and vote at the ballot at the state level, at the local constituency levels, at the federal levels in a way that is unprecedented and does so year in, year out. And so insofar as that's how we're measuring democracy, you know, India is a far cry from, from being an autocracy anytime soon. Even when the state has uh, been captured by an autocratic leader in a strict sense when uh, civil liberties and its democracy was uh, arrested and paused under Prime Minister Gandhi during the emergency of 1975 to 1977, uh, democracy returned, right? Uh, and she was ousted. On a substantive level, I think that's where the conversation gets a lot richer. On a substantive level where a um, leader um, and a party that is using its uh, majoritarianism to undercut religious and ethnic and caste minorities and build institutions Anyone in a majoritarian the image. Republican Party. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, we can come to that too. And is building institutions in that majoritarian image. Uh, I think that there are shades of authoritarianism in that kind of a move, absolutely. Yeah, you can still be authoritarian with popular backing. It's it, it's what, what you do to the minorities that matters, I suppose, under these circumstances. Um, Sabina Indijit says, uh, India's standard at the UN is disappointing for many, but can it afford to be on the wrong side of Russia when ties with China are strained? And I, I can quite understand this line of thinking of... Um, we don't have a dog in this fight. Why should we put our economy on the line for somebody else? Even if we, but, you know, I, I feel the temptation to at least register a token disapproval on behalf of sovereignty with Ukraine. So you know, to what extent is this a real commitment? Um, everybody, you know, the, the US blows a whistle and expects everybody to jump into line. And, but then famously, James Baker over the Balkans originally said, we don't have a dog in this fight. You know, let them go kill each other. Uh, 
nothing to do with us. Nothing going on here. Move on. Um, of course, it didn't work out that way. And in an intricately geoconnected world, what happens in uh, Ukraine and the Black Sea has got repercussions everywhere. Even though it doesn't quite get to the great game, it's not likely to reach India for any time soon, even with all of Kipling's scouts and Kim working on it. I think that's a very good question. But again, I think... Um we, we should all be cautious about paying too much attention to pronouncements, uh, you know, with all due respect to, to, to your background and experiences at the UN with what's being said at the UN. Um, we've seen a flurry of foreign delegates, senior delegates from Russia, China, the US uh, and elsewhere, either visiting or about to visit New Delhi um, in order to gain assurances, pass on their perspective, uh, compel India or convince India to see their particular perspective. And I think that is not a bad position to be in for India and Foreign Minister Jay Shankar and exactly, Prime Minister yes. Modi. Um, this war is less than two months old and India has deep strategic interests in ensuring that the U.S. Uh, and their ties with the U.S. stay strong, which I still believe uh, is their main priority and main focus, because they both share a um, a common threat uh, with regards to China, and the role of Russia and measuring where Russia is in the very long term could India lose uh, risk losing Russia to China's camp? Sure. Uh, but I don't think that's worth considering or being um, concerned about for New Delhi right now. For New Delhi right now, the concerns are far more proximate and immediate around its uh, defense commitments, especially if, as you implied earlier, this war cascades far beyond Ukraine, leads to a very different kind of security order in Europe, changes the dynamics in the Pacific and the Russia-China relationship then India even more so needs to ensure that its defense preparedness is not negatively impacted. And that's on the security side, but also on the domestic side, to link it back to your earlier question. You know, populist leaders cannot afford to have uh, disruptions vis-a-vis -vis inflation, uh, energy to their domestic um, political and economic order. And the second and third order effects of this current war and what it could bring with regards to the price of oil, uh, to inflation, to disruptions domestically, um, India can ill afford to, to entertain that. So it's taking, I think, a cautious approach. Uh, I think there's a very clear match between policy and strategy here. If you look at the, the writings and the pronouncements of someone like Foreign Minister Jay Shankar, this is strategic autonomy being played out uh, in a textbook way. And India's position has also evolved in less than six, seven weeks, uh, right? The Prime Minister Modi has had calls with, uh, with uh, uh, President Putin and President Zelensky. Um, I think behind closed doors, uh, India and its decision makers are being far more open uh, with their counterparts from Russia and the US. Uh, but it is not uh, in any contravention of its historical record for India to 
internationally and publicly keep a more nuanced line. What I would urge people to do is read between the lines in some of the in, uh, statements that are coming out in the public. It's never going to be a kind of Washington style, you're with us or against us, or there will be consequences or talk of red lines. That's just not going to happen. It does. Uh, well, the, the whole conflict has been uh, bedeviled with <coughs> what you might call binary thinking, where it's all one or the other. And nuance is, uh, as a word, it might be used, but as a concept, it's not been much used in the course of this. In, in fact, as you were talking, it reminded me that India's position, you know, uh, if you scale it up, is not that dissimilar to that of uh, the Free State of Ireland during World War Two, which you know it was very close. It had principles. It had a population that was not very happy with the stand, but it decided to take strategic implications in there, and uh, it, it, it was um, Ireland survived, and it hasn't been reviled as a Nazi sympathizer since, despite uh, being the last place where the German where the Irish Prime Minister went and paid his condolences on the death of Mr. Hitler at the, at the German embassy. They were forgiven. And uh, they kept getting, you know, they, they kept getting aid from the British and uh, support from the British and Americans afterwards. So the, there is room, a lot of room, historical room for manoeuvre here. And uh, India is in a position much better than Ireland in terms of people want People want India's support. Not many people wanted Ireland's support in World War II. <laughs> and Ian, you know, between your words there, you mentioned at the start of our discussion colonial origins, right? And, you know, not to uh, make this too theoretical or historical at the cost of talking about the practical realities of politics, but, you know, you mentioned Ireland there. India, Ireland, you know, most of the world... Uh, have long memories and those uh, colonial legacies are important. The legacies of the Cold War are important, but the hand that New Delhi has today and the hand that other countries, uh, let's call them post-colonial states have in Asia, in parts of Latin America, in some parts of Europe, uh, though, though not too much, is very different. And the, the kind of world they want to see and actively shape is also very different. So India has absolutely uh, a values and ideas-based alignment with the United States, but it also does not want Washington's global preponderance uh, to return in the way uh, it can, um, as we've seen through the Cold War or, um, you know, as a corollary, uh, the British during... Um, uh, the empire. It fundamentally wants to see global power shared and spread and for the cleavages that that brings to engender competitive advantage at an international level. And India wants, and quite frankly, probably deserves that seat. Um, and so, you know, the other side here doesn't just get a vote but now gets to shape what happens in global politics. And I think that's what we're seeing play out here. I'm, I'm ambivalent about expanding the Security Council. I think shrinking it would be much better myself, but that's another story. <laughs> we, we can discuss that on another occasion. Um, but it is, uh, of course, as the famous uh, Speaker of the House here once said, all politics is local. And we're discussing geopolitics. And 
uh, Modi's strength and his leverage comes from domestic support. So uh, I think this is the real subject of your recent book. To what extent is, uh, is he, has he consolidated that report? To what extent is he unassailable? Uh, can Congress ever come back to life like a, a staggering zombie or is it, is it dead forever? Uh, are there any other parties on the horizon or is it as Saturn recently sort of regional state parties uh, coming into ad hoc coalitions to get what they want? Yeah, look, one adage is that all politics is local and another is, you know, you're never really out of uh, the game in, uh, in politics either. So to say the Indian National Congress can never come back is not something that I'm going to sit here and claim, but it seems highly unlikely that it's going to happen anytime soon. Um, you know, usually the way uh, Uttar Pradesh, uh, India's most populous state, uh, goes, usually the country goes. And the BJP outright won the 2022 UP state election, um, a state that, you know, prior to the BJP's rise uh, over the last 10 years, had a recent history of being ruled by uh, um, a series of coalition and state parties. But now the BJP wins outright there, and it wins outright there, uh, even more interestingly, uh, against the backdrop of the thread that you outlined earlier, which is communal politics, right? It also has a pretty sizable uh, Muslim minority. It has a pretty sizable uh, OBC or, or backward caste minority um, and uh, set of minorities. And so despite those um, political countercurrents, the BJP won outright. And it won outright even more surprisingly uh, perhaps to some of your listeners, uh, uh, with a pretty strong uh, religious uh, nationalism and authoritarian uh, approach um, under the uh, leadership of Yogi Adityanath. And so the BJP is, is set to win, uh, and Modi is set to win a third term uh, in 2024. Um, and the, the reasons for that are you know, of course, the, the performance of the BJP government, um, the uh, leadership of Prime Minister Modi, and we can go into to any of these buckets. But also looking at the other side, uh, it also speaks to the fact that the main opposition, the Indian National Congress, is totally decimated. Uh, it's led by a dynast in Rahul Gandhi, uh, who is, by all accounts, uh, a blunt uh, uh, political leader. Uh, it's beset by internal strife uh, within the party itself, hasn't been able to manage generational shifts, um, and has been noticeably absent from uh, a bunch of uh, uh, serious electoral victories. Now, you spoke there of smaller parties, regional parties, and that's where, for, for a long time, certainly since the late 80s, there was a view of India sort of going towards this uh, highly plural um, state-driven party system, right? We can think of uh, the Trinamool Congress in West, uh, in West Bengal, the DMK in Tamil Nadu, uh, the Ahmadmi Party up in Delhi, which uh, was born out of anti-corruption protests, uh, uh, 12 years ago, um, off of which my book is based. Um, and um, the 
counter-argument would be, can they come together and form uh, a united opposition? But they have not got the numbers uh, and, quite frankly, nor the resources to mount a serious challenge uh, to the BJP. Uh, and on both those counts, in terms of mobilization and resources, uh, and then the third pole of Prime Minister Modi and his personality itself, I think make BJP uh, a formidable uh, political machine, uh, and they'll they'll sail through the 2024 elections. I mean, it's, I was in India in 1983, and I was it was the the BJP was sort of embryonic and somewhat sort of how should we say insular and parochial. Uh, um, but it, it's it's been growing. You could see the seeds of it there. It was uh, actually adopting a serious populist approach. It was taking economic measures, etc. So, is this going to consolidate its? You know, are, are we are, are we faced with a, a BJP Raj forever, or is there any serious threat to them? No, not in the short term. Uh, I think their threats. Uh, can probably be listed as the following. Um, first and foremost, not necessarily from the outside. I think uh, if any threats come in, it will invariably be uh, about leadership transitions and leadership changes. You know, the BJP uh, is very much in terms of its power in Delhi dependent on Prime Minister Modi and his uh, personality and his uh, leadership and his style of rule, but also the BJP is backed by a very large uh, right-wing Hindu nationalist sect called the RSS, which has to survive, (laughs) which has to, which has to, and necessarily, Ian, has to survive and be bigger than any one individual. And so if I were to sort of look ahead to quite frankly, past 2024, because I think that's um, uh, an assured victory for the BJP. It'd be interesting to see and note um, how and where do internal uh, cracks appear within the current BJP machine? Um, How does a transition of leadership take place? Modi can't be in power forever. Um, So I think that's actually the more interesting place to look at right now. Um, Of course, the Indian National Congress, which is its only other national level opponent um, and rival, for many years now, uh, we've all, those of us who study India, been looking at the Indian National Congress to see, you know, what will happen? Uh, Will there be a change in leadership? Will there be a better management of generational shifts? Will there be, quite frankly, an alternative put forward to what is an increasingly a religious nationalist vector within the BJP, which will only grow as its structural power concretizes in Delhi. And what can the Congress party put forward? Quite frankly, right now, the answer is, you know, nothing. Um, And then the third piece are the regional parties. Uh, Will we be able to see them come together uh, and and provide a united opposition? Um, I think eventually uh, they could get the numbers. Um, but that will take a long time. Uh, resources is the interesting piece. You know, there is an entire political economy of uh, how political parties in India um, 
are able to fundraise um, and bring funds into the party machine. And laws and legislation has been changed and altered uh, to thwart them. Uh, and that's happened under the BJP. And they simply, some of these regional parties, don't have mobilization at a national level to be able to rival the RSS. So in the short term, Ian, um, I think uh, those are the three ways in which cracks could emerge to, to the BJP's hegemony. But um, we'll only start to see them, if at all, in the medium to long term. Bearing in mind that the RSS was, uh, has, let's just say, been implicated in the assassination of Mohandas Gandhi at the, at the start of India. Uh, it's transformed now, of course, it, it claims. To what extent uh, is the BJP prepared in this? It, we, we have the polit politics in India is an expensive business. Um, from an outside point of view, it appears almost as corrupt as US politics. In fact, possibly even more so in terms of people buying influence, buying votes, funding campaigns in return, you know, transactional politics, shall we say. So um, to what extent, if the BJP were to lose, would it be prepared to give up? I mean, you have an authoritarian party with its uh, Hindu nationalist and even fascist origins in some ways. Uh, self-assured middle class with lots of money that tends to subscribe the religious agenda, would, would they give up if they lost? Give up power? So you, you're, you're, yeah. the implication being that would they uh, well, hold if, on? If Donald uh, Trump finds it so, if the American, if elements of the American Republican Party find it so difficult to hand over power, as we saw earlier this year, then uh, to, to what extent, uh, last year, to what extent is uh, the BJP uh, going to be, uh, yes, you won, it's a fair fight. Um, you know, I'll pull up my stumps and go. That's a fascinating question. And I think one that we all should be looking at and studying. You know, my book in part looks at a period in India's history where uh, the only period in India's uh, post-independence history where democracy and civil liberties and the constitution was um, uh, superseded by the political executive. And it happened against the backdrop of several variables um, from political opposition to ideological threats to an authoritarian uh, prime minister to the power afforded to her by her party. Um, in short, many shades that we see under uh, Prime Minister Modi and his BJP government. And so I think there is absolutely, um, we can't rule out that the BJP in its current structural form and with its ideological power, would it view um, any opposition overtaking it uh, as a threat to its uh, structural position and would it then seek to extra-constitutionally stay in power? I think that's absolutely on the table. I think it's worth being cautious about um, some counterpoints to that. I think swinging this back to global politics, um, India also wants to be a, uh, a values as well as a strategic-based player in global politics. Um, and so were it to completely throw out the constitution and were the BJP to stay in power, even if they were voted out, 
uh, that would negatively impact its its global politics and its relationships abroad. Um, so I think that's one, but it doesn't need to happen in um, uh, at such a national federal level. And that would be my second point, which is the BJP has today got the power to be able to sniff out and thwart opposition in ways that are happening today and, and, and throughout India. Uh, you can change laws, you can change the way voting happens, you can change the way parties, uh, opposition parties are able to raise money. Um, you can arrest party members, you can essentially do what Mrs. Gandhi did overnight in arresting um, the constitution, but do it on a, in a way that is more subtle and as part of daily politics. And I think actually the BJP has already been doing that. So in other words, to answer your question, um, the BJP will find ways to make sure constitutionally and extra constitutionally that it maintains its power in the event it sees threats, but it will do so in a way that is subtle and in pockets as opposed to as a big bang emergency move. Well, there's a sound of silence here in most countries under similar circumstances. So I'm going to intrude on the sound of silence and where does the military stand in this? Because the, the, Indian, the Indian army and the Indian navy, the Indian forces generally, are almost a, an oasis of anti-communalism from what I've seen, you know, that it, in, in terms of having a civil outlook. And they've been completely absent from this. Uh, is the BJP doing anything that would ensure military support if it did something? Is it... Uh, is it cosseting the military or are the military able to keep the BJP and uh, the politicians at arm's length? That's a fascinating question. India generally has a pretty uh, positive uh, history of civil military relations. Um, and in part, that's due to the colonial origins of independence. Um, India inherited very strong uh, political institutions that were able to, right from the outset, maintain supremacy over the military. And quite frankly, the size of the country has rendered uh, an outsized military that uh, enforces its um, uh, stamp domestically uh, untenable. Now, that being said, promotions, selections, um, uh, and uh, nominations are very much in the political realm. And so there are subtle ways in which the BJP can ensure the acquiescence of the military by making sure that in large part, through these mechanisms that I just listed, its leadership can be ideologically aligned. Um, but also some of the issues that we're talking about at a domestic level come under the, uh, the jurisdiction of local security forces, uh, such as the police. And those tend to be ruled by the, by the uh, corresponding states. And that's where I think you do see a lot more of the kind of uh, corruption and politicization that you implied vis-a-vis uh, -vis the military. Um, well, in several of the riots, the, the BJP-controlled security forces came in on the side of the rioters, as I, as I recall. In Delhi. 
Yeah, because yes. in Delhi, the federal the federal government um, controls the uh, the local security forces and the police, and so that's your that's your clearest example of um, political masters control. Mm. I mean, do you have and, any concrete uh, examples of the process? You because I remember this is how. This is what happened in Yugoslavia. Once the Milosevic's Serb nationalists took over, uh, it was like a, a frog in the pond of the water, in, in the warm water, getting well, Suddenly, all of the others realized that almost every officer that had been promoted was a Serb. Almost everybody left was a Serb. All the people in strategic positions were Serbs. And it was done almost without anybody noticing. Um, they began to resent it. That's why they started leaving the Federation. But uh, do you have any concrete evidence of a similar process? But Ian, it doesn't have to be at a. It, it doesn't have to be at a. In the example that you, you just gave, that's that's a story of co-ethnics, right? Um, I don't think that um, promotions and selections need to be of other Hindus uh, in within the military architecture for them to be aligned with the BJP. Um, there's also a military-industrial complex if. The, the military is being uh, supported and backed in terms of leading weaponry, in terms of um, preparedness. That's something that the, the political class can do to ensure that the military stays on side as well. Um, but it's, nowhere, it's, it's not analogous to, to the, the Yugoslav situation that you just pointed out or what we've seen in parts of Latin America or certainly what we saw next door to India and Pakistan of um, uh, co-ethnics being in positions of leadership in order to share um, an ideological mandate. Mm. Oh. So is there going to be any change? Because we're, we're, I don't know, are we a, we're either at the start of a very long war of bloody attrition or uh, moving towards the end game in Yugoslavia, in uh, Yugoslavia, sorry, these tropes sticking with one's mind uh, in, in the Ukraine and Russia. Um, is India in a position to offer uh, a ladder for the parties to climb down? Has, has Modi kept enough distance to say, look, you know, I'm, I can be the peacemaker. I will come in and uh, we, we, we can work something out. Uh, and both of them will be in a position to defer to him. This is the role the United Nations should be playing. But it's, as we have noticed, the uh, United Nations is very conspicuous by its absence. <laughs> I don't just think that's uh, something to, to speculate and possibility. I think that's highly probable. In fact, I think that's exactly what India is hoping that it ends up doing. Um, you know, Prime Minister Modi has had calls with, with Putin as well as Zelensky. Um, and uh, I think it's very much in line with um, the Delhi's foreign relations today and the worldview of uh, Foreign Minister Jay Shankar. And the polit and the, the the foreign relations that Prime Minister Modi has projected, that they want to be able to be in a position where their strategic interests vis-a-vis -vis their um, uh, defense trade with Russia and their relationship as a um, democratic power with the US, um, but that both those interests can in some form survive. And so being able to be in a position where they can uh, bring together a corridor of countries, uh, of alliances to create uh, an exit uh, for this conflict, um, 
I think that's exactly what what uh, uh, India has been looking to do. And they've already made mention of, you know, the parties to return to the Minsk agreement um, and so forth. And I think what we're going to see with a lot of these foreign visits that are happening right now in India, that behind closed doors, India will be looking to, to project itself as a, uh, not a uh, player, but the player that can bring uh, help bring the parties away from uh, a war of attrition. Um, this is sort of tied into the question of uh, resources for elections and so on. The Indian ex- overseas Indian component, uh, mm. big in Britain, Australia, it's huge in America now. And I have seen signs from what I can see that they are very often aligned to Hindutva and um, the BJP. Uh, are these a significant resource base for Modi for the future for elections and you know and for domestic influence inside American politics? Come to think of it, it's a fascinating question. I think um, you know a lot of the polling uh, and the surveys that have come out uh, is uh, uh, points to something exactly what you just said. Um, you know, Indian diasporas, uh, certainly in the UK and in the US, uh, tend to be Democrat or Labour uh, or left-leaning at home um, and uh, support uh, Prime Minister Modi uh, in India. Um, and can they be a resource to uh, New Delhi? Absolutely. Now, there are, of course, uh, legislative barriers for them to, you know, provide resources by way of capital to um, political campaigns in India. And there's there's not enough evidence to suggest that they would necessarily uh, be willing to do that in their droves. But um, they can absolutely be uh, proponents of uh, Indian interests um, domestically not just in uh, political spaces, but beyond that in business and elsewhere. Uh, and we've seen that in diaspora communities far beyond India. So that's not something that's exclusive to India, but the size of it, the, the size, size of that yes. diaspora in the UK, the US, Australia, um, Canada, uh, Canada and elsewhere is, uh, is suggestive. Now, it's, it's important to note that even within those communities, um, there will be um pretty significant cleavages of opinion um i don't think every member of the indian diaspora um will necessarily even look to support politics in india because within that diaspora you have indian born citizens uh that are living abroad in these countries you have members of the diaspora that are one two three generations removed from india so I think the, the picture is a lot more complicated than just to suggest that they would um, one-to-one support um, the sitting government in India and advance Indian interests. But certainly um, in, there's, there's a strong cultural bridge between the diaspora and New Delhi that can be advantageous to um, not just the Indian government, but Indian businesses, Indian civic organizations, and that's where it goes far beyond just Prime Minister Modi. I mean, think about the Howdy Modi event um, in Houston a couple of years ago uh, that Trump attended. Um, you know, it sold out an entire stadium. Um, so 
is the is the uh, is the diaspora a powerful uh, and important tool and bridge for Indian institutions, be it private, public, or otherwise? Absolutely. Which direction will they go in? I think uh, there's a lot more uh, variation there. Um, but some of our best evidence suggests that there is salient support for uh, Prime Minister Modi's more um, uh, ambitious uh, foreign relations and uh, strong leadership in India um, than there has been previously. We're getting towards the end, and I realise that uh, we've been wandering up to such uh, engaging and fascinating questions, uh, even sometimes answers. Um, I've cheated you. Uh, can you explain to the press here what what your day jobs are? Tell us about the Inquirer, the Centre for <laughs> Indian Studies of Pennsylvania. Get your PSA in yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. So, well, first of all, thank you for having me, and thank you for everyone who's who's listening and, and came to the talk. Um, my day job is a, is a co-founder and, and COO of a technology company called Inquire AI. We deliver uh, expert content and expert insights uh, to businesses and decision makers who are looking to understand the world, uh, whether it be its markets, its politics, um, from the local right to the global in real time. Um, we have a network of over 300,000 knowledge assets and we essentially build software that enables companies to tap into expert insights uh, outside of their organization or even within their organization by identifying who knows what uh, within their four walls. So that's my day job. That's what I'm building. Um, and I also have a, uh, an affiliation with the Center for the Advanced Study of India as a non-resident scholar. Um, that's what my previous life as an academic was spent focused on. I just released a book on India off the back of my PhD, which looks at how the Indian government responds to domestic political crises and the focus is on really centralizing the role of leadership and ideas, which historically has been sidelined as a causal factor in how the Indian government behaves. Uh, and that's the PSA. Okay. Uh, I think Jamie will... Jamie is going to put on the screen, I hope, as we go the... CUP book uh, and the Inquire, uh, Chiron. Um, but we are coming to the end, almost exactly on time. Uh, I think this has been uh, a fascinating discussion. It's brought back memories of this time more years ago than I care to remember when I met Mrs. Gandhi and Chandrasekhar and George Fernandez and the others. And it's interesting how things have developed in ways that we wouldn't, necess wouldn't necessarily of uh, anticipated then and uh, I'm fairly sure that things will develop in ways that we're trying to anticipate now but not necessarily getting it right who'd have thunk about uh, Ukraine and Putin at the moment for example a year ago this was all this would have been a science fiction apocalypse uh, scenario but it's it's happening so thank you all for coming and the foreign press association we're trying to broaden the range we're trying to get away from binary politics and you know there's lots of shade there aren't just goodies and baddies in the world sometimes people do good things for bad reasons and sometimes people do bad things for what they think are good reasons it's that type of nuance that we need to understand if we're going to cope with the world because if we think it's all black and white out there we're in for we're going to get grayed out <laughs> when reality hits us but thank you very much Bilal I look forward to seeing you again soon thank you everybody Please subscribe to the Foreign Press Association. 
please let us know who you are and when you want to come and help me send us money. We're still recovering from COVID. The plague has got us in the in the death pit still. But thank you very much. Bye. Thank you. Hope to see you again, Bella. Bye. You too.